Cool. So, um, Rich, I, I wanted to start, um, <clears throat> if I could, I, I wanted to start just by, uh, with some gratitude, um, because I've really enjoyed getting to connect with you, um, over Twitter the last several months. And I've really appreciated how you've held yourself in our exchanges. And, um, I, I, I felt like I've left all of our exchanges feeling like a little bit more, more, uh, insight, so, uh, particularly around my own delusions and just grateful that, um, of, of how kind you were in, in the exchanges. So, um, just wanted to start there because that's our kind of real time human mm. connection. Is on I appreciate Twitter. that. I appreciate that. Uh, that, that feeling is, uh, mutual. I, I, um, I don't know what it is. I feel like you, um, maybe you bring out some of the kindness in me and, I do remember there was one exchange where I was a bit of an asshole and then I, that just didn't sit with me and I had to go back and say, look, I think I'm being an asshole and I'm going to stop. <laughs> so I think there's something going on between us that brings out that dynamic. I'm, I'm really, yeah, I'm glad for the appreciation. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and it, for, for me, it's, it's kind of, it's not so surprising um, because before I sort of connected with you on Twitter, realized you were on Twitter, I had, um, I was aware of your, uh, some of the work that you're doing through Inspiral in particular, um, having kind of been like getting really interested in open source and alternative economic models and business entrepreneurial models. And I've been sort of really exploring that the last several years and turning away from capitalism. And, and you really, I think Inspiral and your work and, and your, and your colleagues work, it, it stands out in, in the landscape as being like, a kind of experimental to me, this is how it looks like to me. Like there's an experimental enclave of people trying some new things and supporting each other and trying to figure out how to kind of get started some, some of these alternatives so that they're not just ideas, but are living realities and places that people could inhabit. Um, and, and, and I, I, I love, uh, I love that. And, you know, I wanted to mention, your, um, your book, um, that you helped you're part of, I don't know. How do you talk about that? Because there's a lot of producing authors here, yeah. but you're one of them. Yeah. I did one of the chapters. That's, that's my claim to fame. In oh, book. cool. So is that how you all broke it down? You sort of each did a chapter. Yeah. There's like, I think, I think there were 10 of us that each contributed like a decent essay. So my oh, mind's cool. all about decision-making. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other contributors with, I mean, there's so many different things in there from like poems to bread recipes and yeah, all sorts of different resources. Oh, cool. So I would definitely highly recommend this. And then you also, uh, I think, are working on a book as well, aren't you? Yeah, apparently. So I published. <laughs> you, you've, how many have you sold? You, you've already sold, I think, 250 copies yeah. from what I, what I yeah. was yeah. seeing on Twitter. Um, there's a platform called Lean Pub, which is like lean publishing, which encourages you to publish your book before you've finished it. Um, which I thought suited me very well because I'm a prolific writer, but usually of blog posts and essays, not, uh -huh. not of books as a, as a whole. And it's quite a different art form. And I really felt for a long time, I felt like I want to be writing books. You know, I want to like learn how to graduate to that, um, that new arena. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I published the work in progress, which is like a, uh, it's got a lot of useful content in it, but it's very rough. You know, it's this obviously sketchy in parts and it's called patterns for decentralized organizing. So it's like mm -hmm. naming the common dysfunctions that happen in self-organizing groups and, and what you can do about it. And I made oh, some great progress great. and then I got stalled because, um, I just kept learning so much, you know, like what really, what really, what really stopped my progress was reading Hansi Freinach's first book. Um, the mm. listening society. And as I read yeah. that, like that just really triggered a whole massive change in my way of seeing the world. And so I had to press pause on my writing to integrate this new way of thinking. Mm. Interesting. So it had a pretty big impact reading that book for you. Yeah. Yeah. It really, um, I mean, it just, it's the first time that I really took development seriously, you know, like mm. um, the development in terms of, uh, cognitive complexity and uh, psychological depth and a few of these kind of concepts, which I hadn't really given any consideration before. And I think that book just really makes the argument quite compellingly. Like if you're doing politics, you have to think about this. You have to have, you have to address p 
people's psychological mm-hmm. states. And mm-hmm. if you're not competent to do that, like your political strategies are not really going to make sense. And, mm-hmm. and, and somehow it was like the framing of the book or the language or the targeting. I don't know exactly what it is, but somehow that, that message landed for me, even though I'd heard the same idea from many other people in different mm-hmm. ways, but it never had really come up on my radar in the way that I was like, ah, oh, right. Okay. It's not just about designing the right structure for your organization or your group or something. It's like, you're really going to have to get right down into the intimate interior details of the individuals if you're going to get this stuff going. And, and the reason, yeah, that I've paused writing the book is because I feel like I want to get more practice in that before I can write with some competence about, about, yeah, how do you address people's psychology? I mean, there's a reason people go to school for years and years and years to, to, to develop any competence in that stuff, you know? Oh my goodness. I know. I know it's true. I, <clears throat> someone reminded me in uh, one of the groups that I was teaching meditation in recently that I was a psychologist and I was like, Oh yeah, I guess in, from, from an, I'm an Eastern psychologist <laughs> you know, tra- trained by people who integrated Western psychology and Eastern psychology. Mm-hmm. And so my formal training isn't in psychology, but it is in psychology because Buddhism is a, also has a big psychology component and realizing that to your point, I'd sort of, it hit me. I was like, how much I don't know in the realm of psychology, even though I've spent the last, you know, 15 years dedicating myself to learning. Um, it's, you know, it's just like a tiny little (laughs) scrape across what's, what's possible to know. (laughs) Yeah. And this is the thing, like, I know how to write a blog post because it's it's fresh and it's contemporary and it's contained and it's like right now this is the thing I'm thinking about and this is what I think about it. Yes. Um, but a book yes. is trying to live a bit longer than that. And true, I feel like I've been learning so much that <laughs> that I, that I'm on my own developmental journey. You know, like that I'm in constant change. So I haven't yet figured out how to how to take a snapshot of that. I can take a snapshot that's an essay length, but I haven't figured out how to snapshot a whole books a whole book size of ideas yet. Yeah. Well, you know, what I liked about the the platform you're using is that it gives space for evolution or iteration, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I appreciate that about the lean uh, method methodologies, mm-hmm. um, that they seem to be kind of moving in that direction of kind of uh, making things more evolutionary or adaptable. Mm-hmm. So it seems cool that even if it changes significantly, your book, you could presumably updated as it evolves yeah yeah that's the thing it's if anyone who who buys a copy of the book then they also get any kind of updates that come next you know so which is why people are buying they're buying the promise of, of your future dazzling insights at this point <laughs> be careful to uh, be careful not to make bigger promises than i can i mean <laughs> it's very clear that this thing is not finished and i haven't got a a due i haven't given myself a due date but uh, <laughs> Well, um, not to make this an advertisement of Lean Pub, but I also appreciated. Uh, I also appreciate that you could that they were playing with alternative pricing mm. uh, mechanisms mm. there, where I've, you could s- sort of set a recommended and then a, a basement level price. That's yeah. really nice. Yeah, I've done a lot of experimentation um, through various business ventures and a lot of just observations through Inspiral as well of how you can play with different approaches to money and different approaches to sales and so on. And that one's a really good one. Um, you know, people talk about the gift economy and and often that just means I'm not going to name a price and I'm just going to say, if you can contribute something, then I welcome it. And I've done a bunch of that and I don't like it. <laughs> um, what mm. I like is to give people an indication and say like, you know, so so for example, some of the courses that we're selling at the moment will say, if you're on a what we call a living wage, you know, if you're okay in an okay position, then this is the suggested price. And if you're on a lower income than that, then you can take this price. And if you're on a higher income, take this price. And mm-hmm. giving people some kind of signaling about, you know, this is kind yes. of normal and this is generous and this is a discount. Yeah, I think I think it really allows for the. It makes it more accessible to people, but it doesn't put this huge burden of calculation in their head of like, how am I supposed to value this thing? You know. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm so glad you bring this up, uh, Rich. This is one of the areas I thought we'd have a lot of uh, convergence around. So um, are, we're using a sort of economic model that we call transparent generosity for our teaching side of Buddhist Geeks. And 
it looks exactly like what you're describing. We give people usually a suggested amount, but then we also show them the data on the range that people have given in the past, the average that people have actually given and, you know, try to show the sort of curve, Mm. you know, the distribution curve. Mm. And then ultimately it's up the generosity part is it's up to people to decide how much or even to give. Um, and, and, and it's not required that they do give in order to participate in, in whatever it is we're doing. Mm. And so I feel like that's the generosity piece, but the transparency is somehow needed for the generosity to function properly. Um, because like you, I've done the, I, I did the sort of pure Buddhist, everything I do is generosity thing. And, and really what I found is that people interpret, uh, by donation as being free. Yeah. Like they just somehow 90% of people just see by donation. They think, oh, it's free. <laughs> Uh, and, and instead if, if they see like, oh, this is the range, this is like the data that you're talking about, it's like a reference point and it, it kind of brings up that kind of capitalist training of like, oh, okay, like I'm in a market and there's expectations and there's value and there's like, I have to, you know, but at the same time, it's not, it's not though, it's not the same, uh, market dynamic where everything is managed through these pricing mechanisms and the, and the consumer just, the only choice they have is whether to participate or to pay, Hmm. you know, (laughs) this, this, um, this little example about pricing, I think illustrates an approach that I've taken, uh, to a lot of different dimensions of, of, well, business, you know, like trying to, trying to do something, trying to produce something in the marketplace, but also trying to do that in a way that reinforces my values rather than undermines it. Mm. And it's something Mm. that I've learned from Inspiral, which is, um, my process usually looks like this, um, First, there's the rejection. It's like, I don't want to be like that traditional yes. selfish capitalist thing. So I'll yes. just take the prices off and it's, 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 it's free for everyone. <laughs> and you just choose your own adventure and give us what you can. And it's like, wait a minute, that doesn't really work, you know, <laughs> because people don't have the information. They don't know how to value this thing. They don't know what context I'm in. Like, is, is this my, do I need this for my core livelihood or is this something like they've got no, they've got no way of reading that information. And then, mm. and then the next phase after that, just um, oppositional, like I'm not going to be that. Then it gets a bit more of a slow unpacking of like, well, what principles are at stake here? You know, like what what am I reacting against? What am I? What kind of design principles do I want to put in here? So it's like, yeah, I don't want to exclude people just because they haven't got money. I want to do something that's good for the world. And if you could benefit from this and you can't afford it, I don't want to kick you out. Like that doesn't. Mm-hmm. I don't think that um, that's very helpful. So I always want to have a way that people can participate, even if they haven't got the money to pay the full price. Um, and I also want to have a, a stable livelihood where I can have some security and look after my family yeah. and, you know, and, and be able to plan for the future and things. So And finish that book. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. And so it's this um, design process, you know, that starts with a hard rejection and then, and then it comes back to a place that's just a bit more nuanced, a little bit more complexified. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I can, I can really relate to the way you're describing that process. Um, it, you know, it's hard not to immediately go, I'm trying to resist the, the, uh, the impulse to bring up Ken Wilber. <laughs> um, because I think this is where maybe there's convergence and divergence, you know, both, uh, in, in maybe our experiences and our, our kind of ways of thinking. But I, I wanted to start with all the convergence because I feel like it's like, it's mostly that that's how I, that's how I experience our, uh, hmm. our, um, kind of interacting with you. And you know, I, I wanted to mention too, like there's, there's this dynamic. I don't know if, if you see it in your circles and domains and networks and whatever else here. And, um, but like, there's this thing that seems to happen like in, in the, in the sort of Western Buddhist community. Uh, and I think it's a common thing where it's like when people are really close to each other ideologically or in terms of how they operate, it's, it's the tiny differences between those communities that seem to elicit the most like eruptive, like interpersonal brawls. And yeah. like, I've been part of them. I'm not talking from the outside. Yeah, like, yeah, I've, yeah. I've been in many of these yeah. and then wondering like, why am I fighting with this person who like, we are more or less part of the same movement. Yeah. I mean, that's what they call fractal narcissism. It's, it's this thing. <laughs> oh, of, cool. There's a word for it. Yeah, I don't know who I stole that word from. It's not mine, but I think it's great I like it. because it's like, you know, um, me and my little brother, we have this tension, but then, um, 
my town and the next town over or the next high school or whatever, we have this tension. And then my little country, New Zealand and, and Australia, they have this tension, you know, and it's like this, it just, it doesn't end. We're, we're continuously doing this process of in-group, out-group and like it, it, it works in a fractal way, I think, that it gets right down to the micro scale and it's probably happening inside of myself at the same time. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, so this this may be, this, this may be even the heart of, of some interesting stuff here, I, I, I suspect. So for, for me, when I, when I consider what you just said, um, the in-group and out-grouping, part of what it brings up for, for me is sort of this intuitive sense. I'm not saying I have this worked out like as a theory or something, but just a sense of like, like somehow this in-grouping and out-grouping at these different scales that it happens, you know, like you just mentioned some, some, some simple ones of like right around you, then there's like your kind of your neighborhood or your town or so forth, the kind of including more geographical area. Um, but like these in-groups and out-groups, they seem to also be part of what, like, yes, there's a narcissism in that, I think for sure. And there's some sort of process of like further differentiation that happens and further refinement and further like ossification too, mm. not just refinement. There's like people set up camps and they're like, you can't be part of this if you're part of that, you know, but like there's something to it. It almost feels like it's driving. There's an evolution. It's part of the evolutionary process that we're in as, as you know, beings like that, that, that process somehow drives life to find different mm. forms or something. It, it could very well be, you know, people who have done a lot more study on, on developmental theories than I have, probably would have a way of talking about it that's more, you know, rigorous, but um, just in a sort of intuitive anecdotal way, my own experience has been um, that there was, a, there was a whole phase of my late adolescence and then, you know, coming into adulthood where I was devi- defining myself by the negative space, you know, that I, that I, um, I, de- I got involved with this like punk subculture and, mm. um, and really started to form our little tribe based on uh, we're cool because we're not like that. And we're not like that. We're not like that. That music sucks. That style of clothing sucks. Like these mm. politics, that's the wrong politics. Um, so this whole process of, of setting up opposition to say like to, to create this negative space around us to say, this is us. We're all the things that are left when you're not any of those things. And then there was a phase transition. And for me, it coincided with um, around about the same time as the Occupy movement kicked off and I got involved with that where I switched from constructing an identity and a shared identity around negative space to positive space. So, Mm. well, what are you for? What are you into? What's cool? What do you like? What are you, uh, what's your mission? What are you motivated for? You know, what are your values? Those kind of things start to come more to the fore. And it's just a really different way of engaging in the world because I can fully embody all of those things without pushing anyone else aside. You know, I mean, like if I value, um, kindness and freedom, then I'm maybe going to push some Nazis aside at the extremes or whatever. But um, yeah. it, it, there's a, it, it, I feel like it creates a lot more space for a lot more flourishing of difference without having to have distance between us, that, that you can be your fully different self uh, immediately adjacent to me and we don't, need to, we don't need to like create all this artificial separation to say, like, look how different we are. We can, yeah, it's, it's, it, it feels more in line with the way that life works, you know, this um, positive construction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I like the I like the way you're describing that uh, phase transition you went through. It's like negative space to positive space because I I got the sense of like your relationships changing in mm. that transition. Is, mm. Was that is that true? Did you did you find you were making new kinds of friends, or how did that That's, change your relationships? <laughs> there's a, there's a little kind of engineering programming geek in me that wants to actually track that, you know, to actually to watch like. <laughs> You know, I'm a former engineer and an avowed Buddhist geek. So. Yeah, right. So, okay, sorry. I think if you could, if you could have a chart of like who I was spending the most time with and how that changed through my life, there would be these moments of obvious disruption, yeah. and um, where it gets where the whole the deck gets reshuffled, you know. Yeah. Um. And and maybe those are developmental stages, you know that that because mm. um, it's happening to me at the moment. Like we're in the middle of it right now, where. Mm. Because because we're going through this pandemic and it's an, uh, it's completely changed the terms of the conversation in a sense. Like the we, we, we I think we were starting to get comfortable with I mean not comfortable but starting getting used to the idea of living in a post truth world where 
everyone would just say whatever nonsense they want and they could still be in charge of massive countries or, you know, like that. We gave up on the idea that anything is true. Um, and then the pandemic came along and suddenly truth is much more obvious again because it's like, are people dying or are they not? And if they're dying in huge numbers, it's because you're mismanaging it and you don't know how to lead. And um, the way that's applied in my own personal life and like my own connections and relationships is, is like seeing in the time of massive disruption where the stakes are really high and everyone's got skin in the game, who is saying stuff that feels sensible, that feels mm. like it's giving me guidance, that points me in the right direction, that gives me a sense of like how I can, how I can stay safe and like what choices should I be making? And it's just been obvious to me that a lot of the people that I was affiliated on with on terms of like a shared sense of political values, they're not really giving me much, you know, like they're, they're not really giving me any instruction about what I should do in this moment. They are, they're mostly just recycling old arguments that I've heard for the last decade. And, and so what's happening for me is like my sense of affiliations are just dissolving at the moment. It's like, wow, these oh, people wow. are not, they're not, um, like I, I basically agree with their values. Like I understand what's, what's driving that, like where that manifests from. And I, and I share those values, but the way that it's coming up in the moment just feels like it's not serving me at all. And I feel like I'm in this process of being, yeah, coming undone, you know, and dissolving and, and going, uh, being less patrolling of my tribal borders and more willing to go, mm. go looking and see who else is out there and what are they saying and which ones of these things make some sense, you know? So mm. yeah, my whole, my whole sense of affiliation is really shifting. Like it did, you know, when I mentioned Occupy 2011. So it's like nine years ago. Yeah, seems like the last yeah. time that happened to me. Wow. 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 And you, you know, you mentioned before we hit the record button that you're in Italy and you're there with your partner, but I think it's just the two of you, as I understood. So you've been like in quarantine. Is that yeah. the right word? Yeah. 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 We went, the whole country went into lockdown. I think it was March 9th. And now what are we at the end of April? So seven yeah. weeks or something. Yeah, it's the 24th today. Wow. So you, so I did, so what I didn't realize when you shared that, it, because you, you, you also mentioned that you have, you know, a lot of your social connections back in New Zealand mm. that I didn't realize on top of that, you're also going through a phase of, of, yeah. <laughs> of dissolving. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rich, I feel like we should just spend the rest of this time just doing, uh, you know, like, I'll just say kind things to you. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I mean, I always accept kindness. I have a. Um... I just didn't realize how much is is dissolving and how 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 little sort of support you have on the ground. Well, the the I have an enormous amount of support through virtual channels, and I've been I've been I've been in training to to learn how to get my needs met through digital means. Because um, before we moved here, we were nomadic for three and a half years. So, oh wow, that's a whole process of letting go of. Um, the geographical roots, you know, like not belonging to a place, but belonging to relationships and learning how to extend those relationships across distance. Mm. Mm. Um, but I've been, I mean, the dissolving thing, that's been intentional, you know, like I've been gray pilling myself on purpose. And maybe a gray, gray pill is kind of a, a jargon. Maybe I should unpack that. Yeah, what does gray pill mean? I mean, I know there's a lot of different colored pills out there in the internet these days. I, I try to I try to wait to see if someone else takes the pill and yeah. how it affects them before yeah. I. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is my understanding. I'm probably mangling the definition, but that's fine. That's the way memes work. So um, you know, in the Matrix, there's this crucial moment where they have you can take the blue pill or the red pill, right. and the blue pill is go back to sleep and ignore what you've just seen, this, this shocking news, and the red pill is wake up from the from the hallucination that you've been in, from the propaganda you've been in. And so the, the concept of the red pill is like this breakthrough moment where you realize that everything you've been fed was a lie. And, and are you willing, you know, do you have the courage to go through that, that process? And then the gray pill is when you just keep taking more red pills and red pills and red pills, like every time you wake up, you think, oh, I got it. Now I understand like this, this uh, capitalism is the problem. And then you take the next red pill and you're like, oh, it's not capitalism. It's like people's human behavior. And then you take another one and then just constantly disrupting your sense of like, what's the right ideology to believe in? And I've been doing that on purpose and it's, yeah, it's, it's really destabilizing. Um, I don't recommend it to people, but uh, it's been a fun process for me. And that's, that's a lot of what I'm doing on Twitter. You know, it's like mm. sniffing out the people that trigger me and then sitting with it and going like, mm. Mm, 
let's ignore the, the part of that, which is their problem. And look at it like what part of that is mine? You know, what's coming, what's coming up there? Why have I got a problem with it? And instead of mm. turning away from it, actually getting up closer and then following a bunch of their friends and going, what is their, what is their view on reality? You know, like, is there, is there anything valuable there for me to learn? Or at least maybe it's not something that I want to take into my life, but at least to humanize those people that, um, that I'm reducing to an other, you know, that I'm turning into a couple of pixels on the screen, like. Um, so I'm following a bunch of bodybuilders and some firefighters mm. and all of these deaf people and these indigenous people. And there's just like lots of different kinds of people that I'm following. And, and, um, mm. sometimes I just go in there and, and just kind of surf around and see what people are, what people are getting, you know, like for some reason I'm following all these awesome, like fashionistas from, from Africa. And it's like, wow, this is African fashion yeah. Twitter is awesome. You know, mm-hmm. who knew? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just like, mm-hmm. um, it's a process. It's kind of like traveling. It's, tra- it's kind of like being a nomad, you know, it's like seeing all these different cultures that exist and it's, it's much harder to believe the, uh, the myth that my culture is the right one when you're exposed to so much difference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. I can see that having a, would you say like a decentralizing effect? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Have you found <laughs> any sources of information that you've been really, uh, found very practical or useful or helpful in this? In this uh in this time yeah um or what have you been finding you yeah saying? i think i think i've i've this is hard to, to, to distinguish like is this really useful or is this my confirmation bias you know that people are kind of feeding me the one uh, the new set of things that i want to hear about but um mm. some of the situational reports that Dan- daniel schmuckenberger and jordan hall have been doing um, you know, these guys that really talk in terms of complexity and, and think in terms of multiple systems at once that, yeah, the game B guys. Yeah. That's been helpful. And John Robb, who's sort of adjacent to that as well. He's been, he's been helpful as well. Like his way of, um, yeah, John Robb, I think he's, he's kind of like plugged into a lot of information sources and makes it his business to digest them and, and reflect them back in accessible terms. So that's been quite helpful. And he, and he seems to be, I'm not super familiar with his work, but he seems to be quite um, impartial is a strong word, but he doesn't seem to have like a really strong political ideology that he's pushing. Like he seems to be like reasonably flexible and, and, and willing to entertain lots of different possible futures. So that's been helpful. Um, but then there's another thing, which is more um, less about a person and more about uh, an attitude or an approach which I'm not seeing a huge amount of online, but more in my personal relationships, which is people who are willing to, to be in that state of not knowing, you know, that, that like um, to entertain the idea that everything we knew has been reset and it's time to reconstruct our views based on a new set of assumptions. There's a few people I know who are willing to do that. And those ones I'm, I'm just feeling really, yeah, I feel like the conversations I'm having with them are really life-giving where we just go like, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like, this is a weird one for me coming from a, um, yeah, sort of anarchist political tradition is seeing how there's a certain kind of value in in centralizing authority for a moment, you know, like that's, um, that's been really obvious uh, being outside of New Zealand looking in. It's like, wow, that country is really handling this crisis extremely well so far. Mm. Um, and I think a large part of that is, I mean, obviously it's like, it's an island, so it's easy to de- defend the borders, but it's also, mm. there's a kind of very centralized leadership that's being exercised at the moment where the, everyone in the country, uh, more or less, the ones that I've been talking to anyway, have just supreme confidence in in the people that are leading the response. And there's kind of no debate about it. And it's the first time in my life where I've looked at a problem and, and felt like adding more democracy wouldn't help. Mm. And that's really, um, that challenges, you know, my sense of political identity in a sense, you know, like, because I'm, sure. I'm one of these people who's all about democracy. It's all about been spent the last decade working on direct democracy and, and lots of different ways from the small scale and workplaces and groups to the large scale about social movements and, how do we do a different approach to government and all that sort of stuff? And seeing for the first time the, I think, 
credible and just use of centralized authority. I'm just like, yeah, I'm not that convinced there's that many anarchists out there that would do a better job of uh, navigating this kind of crisis. And, mm. and I have to just concede and say, you know what, that's actually, that's actually quite impressive. And it is playing on people's nationalist tendencies. You know, like I think Jacinda Ardern, the prime minister in New Zealand is playing the mother of the nation and she's doing that really intentionally and, mm. and it's working. Like my friends in New Zealand think that she's like their mum, you know, <laughs> and she's doing that on purpose and it's helping. It's helping because she's playing a kind of just authority and, I never would have imagined that I would have any appreciation for that phenomenon, you know, but here it is. It's like, I've got to be honest about that. And I've got, yeah, mm -hmm. there's plenty of people that I'm, I'm close with that could never entertain such an idea because it just contravenes their foregone conclusions. And, and somehow maybe because I'm distant from all of my people at the moment, somehow I'm more able, I think, to just let go and be like, huh, that thing that I thought mm -hmm. was super important. Actually, there's a, there's a new circumstance that I hadn't thought of and, um, Turns out, you know, different configurations are good for different times. Yeah, that and, and that that's very interesting because that to me, what you're saying, I, I'm hesitant to even throw this phrase into the mix, but I, I think it's unavoidable. It's like to me, you're 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 going. There, there's a meta move in what you just described. You're going meta on the particular ideologies and talking about different configurations. You know, you're making an object out of what for many people is not, you know, something to be configured, but it's who they are. You don't configure someone, you, you, know, you configure ideas or you configure strategies or you configure resources or something maybe, but you don't configure, you know, ideology, you know? So to me that, that it's interesting, your, your, your way of describing things is somehow removed in some sense, not, I'm not saying you're totally removed, but you've got some distance or space in what you're describing and how you're relating to things. And I find that, I find that very interesting, you know, because there's something um, very practical about knowing what kind of thing to bring to bear, you know, at what moment, you know, it's like, how do I respond to the situation appropriately? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it all depends on if you think that um, the world would be a lot better if everyone was just a bit more like me and my friends. If you've got that view, like I understand where that comes from. Um, Have you met my friends though? <laughs> Let me just ask. <laughs> um, but there comes a point, I think, I think this is a kind of stage of maturity where you realize that like the world is great when there's a huge variety of different ways of being and that they form some complex uncontrollable network that we're all enmeshed together and we're all playing different parts and and I don't mean to say some kind of, you know, uh, open-ended tolerance of all perspectives and like, yeah, let's have the the flat earthers and the Nazis and everyone just sitting around the campfire singing Kumbaya. I don't mean that, but that, um, that there's lots of different ways to have a good faith understanding of the world and those things can be mutually incoherent. Um, and one doesn't need to destroy the other. You know, they can we can have this uh, this kind of pluralism a specific kind of pluralism where you've got lots of different dynamics that are, that are tugging against each other and together they hold a meshwork, you know, that, that, um, that there's a kind of elasticity and we're pulling on each other in different directions, but we're not, we don't want that thing to snap and that one person wins or one way of thinking wins. It's actually really healthy to have right. the whole, the whole system tugging against each other all the time. And, 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 and isn't in some ways that the beauty of, of, democracy in, 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 in theory, you know, that when it's a, a democracy's functioning, you get sort of that there, yeah. kind of <laughs> difficult elasticity. <laughs> it's yeah. like hard to, hard to pull it in to any one side. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, in theory, yes, but it's one of these, um, democracy is one of these abstractions that, that I think is just, yeah. um, I'd yes. be, I'd be quite happy to just get rid of it. It's the same as, uh, capitalism maybe, or, um, masculinity or there's these abstractions where I'm just like, do we need those? What would happen? What would happen if we just ditched that language and had to go down one step towards more practical things and yeah, um, and reconstruct our reality from from some more up to date, fresh understandings? You know, like I don't know, maybe that's wishful thinking. Yeah, or or for me, I would say, or at least some fresh configurations or more. To to me, the whole problem is like we're just so irresilient. We're just so not adaptable. 
as a as a society like on a society level scales um you know national scale state scale like i i this whole pandemic for me is just it's highlighted what i've already knew which is like we're not very flexible and resilient um our governance system is just isn't and we can't adapt very quickly to things maybe that's where an authoritarian government can you know, because of the the forced unity can respond. It's like, okay. Or, or in the case of New Zealand, it sounds like very skillful, uh, like kind of harnessing of national unity to respond. And it's not sort of forced per se. For the moment, I think it's the right response, but I'm really concerned about the long, long-term impact of it. Not because New Zealand is going to turn into some corrupt like dictatorship. That's, that's not really a legitimate threat, but um the problem with good leadership is that it uh, it's very easy for that to disintegrate people's agency, you know, because it's like, interesting. Mm-hmm. you know, I've got friends that work in, that do a lot of grassroots community projects in New Zealand and they feel a bit like, huh, the official centralized government response has kind of got everyone covered. And then in the sense, it's like, wait, where's our space? Like, what are we doing? What? There's, there's kind of no room. And, and that, that doesn't, yeah, that makes me uncomfortable. I'd much rather have a, um, a society in which uh, a lot of the energy is coming from these grassroots um, initiatives and that the, the government is sort of a safety net in the background that, that fills in with this gap, but mostly it's trying to let the neighbourhoods just look after each other in their own creative ways with their own set of values. And um, I am concerned about, yeah, how, how citizens can become consumers, you know, rather than co-constructors. Of, of a democracy, but they just they're just kind of like passively sitting back and like, yeah, the red team's doing it for now. They're pretty good, and if we don't like them later on, we'll get the blue team, and that might push us off in the right direction. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's a pretty major. There's still maybe that's still a big part of my political position is like finding ways of animating people's agency and giving them a sense that they they get to determine what their lives and what their neighborhoods look like. Um, it's pretty important to me. And, and it's kind of a puzzle. I don't really know how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, it, it's, a, it's a big question for me on a much smaller scale as a teacher, hmm. you know, as a, as a Dharma meditation teacher, because that's, that's how I view my goal as a, as a teacher is to empower someone to be their own fully creative agent and to you know really feel like they trust their own mind and consciousness enough to adapt to whatever's there um and and like when someone can do that they don't they they become more interdependent you know they they become more able to in my experience um be one of those nodes that's kind of holding others up when things are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I've, I've seen that as well in this time. It's like, Oh, who are the people holding everything up? Like who are the ones that you can still count on, you know, that aren't like just kind of losing their shit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm, I'm in that group per se, but <laughs> I see some people. Um, but no, I mean, it's um, to, to your point, to your point earlier, you know, there's, um, how do we empower people? How do we support people in being agents? Because I think even the very, the recognition to me that I need to empower people brings up this very uncomfortable question of like, well, why am I in this position where I need to empower people? Because there is a lot of power in the position of the empowerer. Yeah. -er. (laughs) I mean, this is, this is why I have a, a kind of hobby horse about this. Like I just don't use that word empower. I use encourage. Because uh-huh. um, encourage for me is about giving someone the courage, you know, like you can do that. I can say what you're doing is awesome and I think you should do more of it and the world needs it and it's great and I love it. Go, go, go. Yeah. And let me know if I can help you. Um, like I do believe that I can give someone courage. I think that's what we do all the time when we have good friendships and, and good peer groups and so on. Um, but the power thing is like it's already in you, you know, and the question is that how do you discover it and how do you claim it yeah. and how do you dissolve the obstacles yes. to it? Yeah. Well, and, and, and for me, Rich, this brings up the par- par- a paradoxical dynamic and we're like, I feel like we're like circling around it and being like turned around this dynamic of like, you know, there both, we have it in us and it, there's a process of uncovering it and we need other people to do that. Like we need, we need friends, we need mentors, we need support, yeah. you know, we need that. And, yeah. 
and like to be needed is a very interesting position to be in. It's like, oh, okay, I have something others need, want, you know, are willing to, you know, go through some amount of hell to get even in some cases. And like, how do I hold that position of, you know, having something, I have water to offer, you know, it's like, okay, here, it's like, do I hoard it? You know, do I, you know, do I say, oh no, only a hundred dollars per, per sip, you know, <laughs> it brings, it brings it back to these very practical questions, these on the ground questions of like, how do I do this? Yeah. Uh, and, and to me, that's what I love about what you're doing. You're, you're really working in both spaces as, as, as I try to like, how do we actually do this? Like, what does it practically look like to enact this? And then, and then like, okay, now how does this change? What I learned on the ground, how does it change how I'm orienting to ideas? Yeah. I mean, this, this is one of the points of departure I have with the way that the game B folks frame, you know, like their, their whole way of, they've sort of got some key pillars that they bring in. The first one is about sovereignty. And it's very much about the individual and about cultivating your, your rudder and your keel, you know, your, 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 your agency, your ability to like, recognize when you're being pushed off center and then get yourself back in alignment. And, yeah. and that's, that's all about this, this um, personal development, which is addressing an individual. And I just don't believe that that is an individual process. I think it's always a relational process. I think the way that you cultivate your sovereignty is you see someone who's sovereign that you respect and then, and, and they give you their attention and you enter into a relationship where you get to pick up a little bit of what they've got. I think that's always the way it works, whether it's like an actual face-to-face personal encounter or it's even just reading their book or seeing something that they did online i always think it's happening through this practice of relationality and so yes that's why my focus is all about like how do we develop these relational practices how do we how do we cultivate relational excellence so that um yeah we can we can give and receive the most from each other through every encounter you know that that to me is is a is a core driving question yeah um Rich, that brings up for me one thing I did really want to talk to you about, which is um, consent-based decision-making. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if that's the terminology you use, but I remember r- distinctly reading you, reading some of your work on this, and and I remember how much I appreciated how you were fleshing it out because I'd been exposed to that same idea in a system called holacracy mm. and had been practicing it for some time and just, you know, found it to be like a hugely powerful practice. Mm. Um, to, to try, you know, the particular way in that system that they integrate objections and, 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 and give space for reactions to come out, Mm. um, when, when, when encountering a proposed change to how we do things. And, and, and I saw you writing about that in almost the same exact way where it was like, this is a different way of making decision-making. It's not consensus and it's not autocracy. You know, it's, it's a different way of, of incorporating, people's voices into the decision-making process. And I, I wanted to see if you could say, just like share your kind of like download on this, because I think it's really, it's one of the areas where I feel like in, in the spiritual world, like we're, we, you know, the communities I roll in, we're very aware of all these sort of spiritual psychotechnologies, but the psychotechnologies around how do we make choices together? How do we govern ourselves? How do we cooperate and collaborate you know, like those things are practices that I think are less uh, obvious and apparent yeah. in, in this world. So I'd love to, you know, get your take on this. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is this is one of one of my uh, focal points of my expertise. Where I actually know, I actually know what I'm talking about. I'm not just speculating on this one. Um, and it's the the chapter I wrote in the Inspiral book, uh, Better Work Together, is all about how I came through the process from consensus to consent. And, and it's, again, it's like I said at the start about this, this, um, I started, you know, first I had this life in an engineering firm, which was this very traditional top-down, um, command and control hierarchy, which was basically a, a kind of a dictatorship. And then I came out of that and I wanted to reject that. And so we started our own company, a cooperative, and we basically went, well, we're not going to do that autocracy thing. We'll be consensus. Well, everyone's, everyone matters. Everyone's voice is going to be involved. Sometimes it's going to take a long time, but we're going to get to that point where everyone agrees and it's going to be worth it in the long run. Um, And then we did that for a while and realized the limitations of it. And now we settled on something that's a bit more nuanced and complex. And it's just, um, it's neither of the extremes, you know? So the way that I usually think about it, and this is, I mean, this is a contentious uh, topic because there's a lot of different practitioners of 
consent decision-making and consensus decision-making and a lot of different overlapping uses of terminology and so on. But just my subjective way of using the terms, basically I think of consensus as a process where you're trying to get as much agreement as possible. And there are some cases where that means 100% of people in the group put their thumb up and they say, yes, I love this idea. Um, There are other kind of ways where maybe you can tolerate people standing to one side, abstaining. Uh, Maybe you can... Your consensus decision is augmented in a way where you can tolerate a little bit of disagreement. But really, the, the goal is you're you're using the dissent to enhance the quality of the proposal until you have as much agreement as you can get. That's the objective okay. of the process. And at the end, you might not get 100% of people saying, I love this, but you are getting people to say, I'm satisfied that this is the best that we can come up with. And that's a that's the orientation that you're going into it with is like, there's a bit of... Um, we're going to convince each other. We're going to really hash this out until we're all convinced that this is the best we can come up with. And that's really useful. That's a really useful tool for, for really important decisions. Like if you're going to own some land with six people or something, then yeah, you probably want to hash out some really important stuff on, the, on those terms. But when it yes. comes to like, yeah, what language do we put on the website for this event? You don't need everyone to have a complete passionate agreement about the, getting the words exactly right, you know? Like, <laughs> and so it helps to have different decision methodologies that you can use. And the, the consent one is a, is a good example. And the way that I distinguish it from con- consensus is with consent, it's not about uh, maximizing agreement. It's about listening for objection. We don't proceed if there's a strong objection. So, But as soon as we get to the point where no one has a strong objection, then we proceed. So that means, um, you know, in sociocracy terms, that means that the phrase they use is, uh, is it good enough for now and is it safe enough to try? And it's this emphasis on, on safety, meaning, yes, you still have that veto, right? Like if you think this is going to do harm, if you think there's like a really serious reason why we shouldn't do this, absolutely, it's your responsibility to share that objection and we'll take it seriously. But we're not expecting everyone to be completely in love with this idea before it proceeds. That's not what we're here for. We don't need everyone to share the same mental model about what might be the outcome of if we take this decision. Mm. We, just need to, we just need to hear, like, do you think it's going to do harm? If not, then let's just try it out. And let's try it out and see what we learn. And I think it's an orientation more towards learning and experimentation rather than this fantasy that we can have a decision process where we come up with the perfect answer and then we don't have to think about it again. Yeah, well, in a way, I mean, in a way, you already revealed this in the way you talked about it, but of having people having have have to have the same mental model. Um, there's a kind of yeah, like an ideological violence there can be of of, of trying to everyone trying to have the same view on on the thing, and uh, and it's like okay, well, I mean, this is this is deep stuff. It doesn't work. <laughs> this is deep stuff. This, we really get into a um, I don't even know. It, um, epistemology and metaphysics and all sort of stuff yeah. because it, yes. it, it really just at some point i think a group needs to know if it's governed by the written word or the spoken word i think mm-hmm. those are very different things and um and it's very nuanced because we don't usually think in these terms but it really matters like if you're if you're governed by the written word then you have some kind of constitutional documentation and you have some kind of procedures and policies and when you need to change something important, then you raise your proposal through this process and everything's documented. And if in doubt, you refer back to that written agreement. Whereas if you're governed by the spoken word, it's your orientation is more towards the present moment than it is towards some documentation about the past. And what you're aiming for is some coherence of feeling. Like, do we feel we've been heard? Do we feel like we're all acting in good faith? Do we feel like we're uh, working together as a whole? And you test that through dialogue. But Mm. sometimes you can have that agreement. You can have that alignment and harmony in a group that, uh, and you can disturb it by trying to write it down. And this is, (laughs) this is a real puzzle for people. Like it's it's still a puzzle for me and we've been doing it for a decade. Like um, I'm very much oriented towards the idea that most humans are basically what they care about is it operates at the feeling layer. They want to they want to feel like part of a healthy, safe group where they're where they're respected and their voice matters, and they don't actually need to have the details of the written proposal perfectly. People don't actually most people don't actually have that much engagement with the detail of the text of whatever goes into this proposal or this constitution. What they give all their attention to is like 
how it feels to be part of that group. And so I'm trying to draw the attention when in the governance processes to like look, attend to those feelings, attend to those relationships, and make sure the the culture is healthy where people can express their feelings and needs. And yeah, sometimes you're going to have to write some stuff down. Like that's a good idea too, but don't expect that those written agreements are really going to be the, the the infrastructure that holds you together. Yeah, you know this this reminds me a bit of um a, a distinction that. I remember Wilbur would always make about the interiors and the exteriors of things. I don't know if that seems relevant to you here, but it's like one of the things you're describing is like the interior feeling of what it's like to be part of this group. You know, and the other is like an exterior document that you can go and look and see what is written about what, you know, what we're supposed to, how we're supposed to be being with each other. (laughs) Um, And you know, those are very different things because you can't, one of them you can see and you can find and you can look at with your eyes and the other, you can only know if you feel it yourself or you, or if you have a sufficiently good conversation with someone and you get a sense for what they feel. And it's like, Oh, okay. There's an, a mutual understanding here that like we both feel good being in this work environment together and we like working here, (laughs) you know? And if suddenly you don't like it, that that's going to affect me and I'm going to, you know, maybe question what it, you know, whether or not I should be happy here because, you know, because Rich is not happy and it's not about necessarily what's, you know, what's happened in a document somewhere. It's like other stuff that comes up. Yeah. I, I think that our Do you think that's a, a, a good way of talking about the difference, like the interior and the exterior? Of the sure. Sure. I think that's, that's, that's definitely one of the dimensions of a, a way to sort of split what's going on there. Um, yeah. I often think about it in terms of complexity, just that like, when you're in a group of people that are all speaking with each other, uh, you can you can construct a kind of shared understanding in the room that is much more complex than you can write down because everyone has a different memory of what happened and what was said and what were the important parts. And obviously that can be a big problem. If you're trying to refer back to it later and everyone's got a different picture of what was agreed, that is a problem and that's the things you want to write down. But the, the nuance and texture of the exchange um, it's got just so much more density than you can ever get into a document because it's like you're not just tracking, oh, Vincent said this thing about the budget, but you're also tracking um, Vincent always seems like he's out to get me and I need to second guess everything he's saying. And, you know, like you've got this uh, extra dimensionality that you're carrying uh, in that in that dialogue space that you just don't, you can't get that into yes. Right. There's all these dynamics and, and interpersonal connections and dynamics that are, mm. can't be captured. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. And then there's the and then there's the whole fact that everything is changing too. It's like even if you were able to capture it, you know, by the time we got to the point of capturing it, you know, everything's different. Yeah. Well, this is this is the um, this is why I I frame it in terms of written versus spoken because mm. um, there's a really great book by Walter J. Ong called On Orality and Literacy, where he documents basically. Um, you know, this is not my area of specialty, but just having read that book, he documents the difference between oral cultures and, and written cultures. And obviously one of the big things about a written culture is that the, the information is static. It lives in a book and you can refer back to it 100 years later. Whereas in an oral culture, it's always fluid. It's always only alive for the moment while you're speaking it and in your memories and all of our memories are fallible and, and we're held in this web of relationship. And um, we've obviously got a lot more evolutionary history in the oral way of doing things. Um but in recent history, we've forgotten that. And, and in the book, he also documents how the arrival of literacy obliterates our oral skills. That it, it's, like, it's not like you have these two different modes and you can switch between them. It's like once you've seen writing, once you've yes. got this idea that you can put knowledge down on paper and it still lives, you know, then you lose your sensibilities of what it was like when, when knowledge was more fluid. Yes, yes. Yeah, I know. Oh, my goodness. We could extend that metaphor further couldn't we with the smartphone um yeah good yeah so so there's so you're describing this process with the written word in which that it's like it's not just a different mode it's an epochal shift yeah yeah Yeah. absolutely um going back to not knowing (laughs) Um, yeah, I'm not really sure where to go from here, but I just wanted to, to, to pause for a moment since, uh, I can do a pause. Always yeah. For a pause. Since I don't know. <laughs> oh, here's, here's something rich. Um, you know, we've been talking about these interpersonal practices. I wanted to bring up 
a kind of adjacent thing that 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 um, that we're working on with Buddhist geeks, which is uh, interpersonal meditation practice, mm. so, social meditation, and that's been something that has really come onto the fore for me in the last several years, and it's beca- become more and more central. Where it's like this shift that I've been going through on a personal level, you know, and that I see my colleagues and you know, I, I see a lot of us shifting in, in the direction that you're, I think, describing of, of um, coming out of the sort of myth of personal, you know, the personal rational self and yeah. like, oh, wait, <laughs> there's more. Um, of course, with this web of re- relationality that, that to, to make meditation something that's not framed in terms of just being an individual, you know, that you're just doing your mindfulness practice and you do your 10 minutes on the cushion with your app and, you know, like you optimize your performance and then come to work and be better. Um, it, the, that, that whole mindset, which has been dominant, you know, in, in, in mindfulness meditation um, and, and in Western Buddhism was, was, I think, dominant for a long time, that, that we're in a shift in, in, as well where the practices are being interpersonalized and um, it's very, very cool to see what comes out of collective interpersonal practices where it's a facilitator role rather than a, a teaching role. Mm-hmm. Uh, or or the, the, those, those two roles can be differentiated. One is more peer-to-peer, as I understand it. The facilitator is just there to facilitate a, a, a protocol that we're all following together and to you know, serve the function of, uh, of bringing up, surfacing, and integrating objections so that, you know, everyone can move forward on the same page, like that it's a different kind of role. And, um, I just find there's something in that shift that I didn't expect in addition to feeling myself as more relational and, and more made up by every, everything and everyone, like the actual sense of that becoming more tangible that also, uh, for me, there's been this shift towards seeing what we're doing as being kind of like speaking out of the written word to be developing a protocols together that we test, you know, in practice and to give enough space for those protocols themselves to change, you know, and for new methods to, 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 to come to emerge out of the practices to, to, to respect people's autonomy and agency in an interdependent practice mm-hmm. uh, and to, and to, and to kind of, harness the evolutionary pressures you know of what it's like to be trying to follow this protocol together this written word while also finding that our experience always seems to dwarf it you know that something new wants to emerge at times or it's like it's just not this protocol doesn't it doesn't reveal this you know and we need another way of of bringing out gratitude or of being able to synchronize our breathing or what you know whatever the the thing is we're trying to do. And, and I just hear so many echoes, you know, of what you're doing. And, and, you know, that's where it's, 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 it, I find some hope, you know, to see people doing similar work across different domains. That to me indicates there's this, there's something bigger afoot, you know, and that's, that's where I draw most of my hope from in these dark times. Yeah, I agree. That sense of evolution, right? That there's this thing emerging that's out of control that we're having some influence on, but it's unpredictable and we're all, we're all doing a part of it. When you see it, um, this kind of convergent evolution where the same thing is popping up in different ways, it's a good sign. I think it's a good sign. Again, it could be my yeah. confirmation bias, but it feels good. Well, that, but the, the fact that you are th- trying to sort that out, you know, I think that's, that's a good indicator, usually of someone who's not completely lost in their confirmation bias. Um, but or or it could be someone who's very sophisticated has a very sophisticated (laughs) that's often that's often the case with me well fair hey i'm 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 with you in that (laughs) i mean this this uh attending to emergence um in an instinctive way that's that's a lot of what i'm trying to do i think with the Mm -hmm. way that i work in the world the way that i show up the work that i put out um I'm really intentionally trying to produce stuff that's modular and transcontextual, you know, like that's why I'm I'm laser focused on practices rather than visions, values, principles, purposes, all of these abstractions. Like I just don't pay them that much attention. And I just focus on the practice and go like, which one of these um, methods tend to get people on a track, which is mutually enhancing. And, um, 
I don't have to tell you that much about why that would be a good thing to do or what does it feel like for them doing it or whatever. It's just like, here's some, here's an instruction set. And if you run this with four or five people for three or four times, then you'll, you'll know if you want to keep doing that or not. And, um, because it's detached from, yeah, these visions and values and purposes and things, it's really, uh, designed to be replicated into many different contexts. You know, people want, people can use different language to describe what it is that they're trying to do with their group. I'm just looking at the parts that the, the sort of the mechanics of being any kind of group and, and you can plug it in and you'll get the experience. You know, it's like, a, mm -hmm. um, and it's like, we're, we're both using microphones right now. Right. Like, and, and the microphone can be used for me to express whatever kind of thing that I want to talk about. What I want is to have a really good microphone that picks up everything. It's, it's kind of the same. It's this neutral trying to design these neutral devices that, have a lot of capacity for, for all kinds of diversity. Yes. Yes. I think, I think that's in some ways how I was using the term psychotechnology earlier, which is, um, John, John Bervakey's term, perhaps, or at least I, I heard him so. popularize it. Yeah. Um, that's beautiful. And, and maybe, maybe this is a question we can, we can, um, start to wind down on. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, because I'm, I'm such a practitioner myself. Like I think of myself primarily as a practitioner, where can people practice with you if they want to practice with you or people that you practice with, they want to learn hmm. the practices that you're practicing. Yeah. Where can they go? Yeah. Well, I've just, um, recently starting to feel this, uh, uncomfortable position of being a bottleneck, you know, of, of sort of, uh, I'm playing a curation role and an amplifier role and giving voice to certain ideas. And then all these people come and they're like, Oh, Rich, can we, you know, can we play together? And, and being a bit overloaded. And so I'm going through this mm. transition about how do I, how do I get out of the way of that? And so, um, yeah, we've been just doing a bunch of different experimentation to see how much of this stuff can be replicated without me being directly in the middle of it. Um, and, and, it, and that's come out in lots of different ways. So it's like, um, the writing I'm doing my, myself, I write blog posts on medium, um, I mean, if you go to my website, richdecibels.com, that sort of is the home that has all the other links that go out from there. So the, the stories that I'm writing there, I'm really trying to put out useful stuff that gives people some guidance. And then um, on the practicalities of how to run a group over the long haul, how to do decision-making, how to handle power dynamics and conflict and accountability and all that stuff, we've got an online course on theharm.org, and that's like a really comprehensive program. And then on the practice side, we've just like yesterday launched this thing we're calling Micro Solidarity Practice Week, and that's going to be in mid-May. So I don't know if the podcast will come out before then, but we're going to be doing, I, I, I've got a good feeling about it, which is going to be like, um, I think Peter Lindbergh calls it a wisdom gym. It's like, it's like going to the gym, but instead of working out your muscles, you're going to work out your heart and your communication skills. So it's, mm. that's got a good feeling nice. about it. So I think we're going to run a few of those. That's going to be online. Yeah. 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 Because you know, everyone's online at the moment. Everyone's up, of course. Um, up for playing with zoom and like what kind of different conversation styles can we, what kind of relational practices can we try from, from our own homes over these video conferences? I, I suspect we're going to have a few of those because the, the immediate reception from just being live for a day has been really warm. Um, and the idea there is like, we'll have 90 minutes, and there's a little bit of a presentation and then you just spend the rest of the hour and practice with some friendly strangers and, um, and spend, yeah, most of the time in the action. And then a little bit just thinking about what you might apply that to, or like, what are some of the abstractions behind it? Mm. Cool. That sounds great. Well, um, I would encourage everyone who wants to practice a different kind of way of um, making decisions and being with other people. I don't know. How do you describe this? It's, it's, it's so encompassing. It's hard to describe it. It's, I really feel like the language is lacking, you know, it's, yeah. um, we've used the term decentralized organizing, uh, as a, as a kind of catch all, because it's like decentralized is not very well defined. It's just the intention that we're not totally centralized, but it doesn't really tell you what shape it is and organizing rather than organizations because yeah, we work with organizations, but also with a lot of networks and emergent kind of swarms as well. Um, right. And then I've started coining this language micro solidarity, which is this whole framework for thinking about groups, which is just my, my need to um, define a namespace of my own, which uh, <laughs> seems mm -hmm. to be, yeah, seems to be providing some value for some people. I hope I don't get too caught up with just um, defining mm -hmm. my own lexicon, which, you know, it's, mm -hmm has its shortcomings as well. I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to 
provide a translation layer so that people can follow their own links to the to the source material and, and remix it in their own way. Mm, yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. Well, um, good luck with the work. And uh, I hope we can stay connected through Twitter and other means. Yeah, me too. I appreciate yeah. your work too. It's it's really good to feel like, um, I call this a long-sidedness where we get to take a pause for a second from the thing that we're, from our own personal mission and just look to the side and see there's someone else alongside us doing their mission and it's adjacent, you know, like it's not, it's not exactly the same, but it really helps the cause, the bigger cause. So I'm, I'm really pleased to put a face and a body to the Twitter handle. Thank you, Rich. Good to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, thank you. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.